We have been um, in a series looking at Nazarites in Scripture, beginning with the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6, and working then into a few of these stories of Nazarites that we have recorded for us in Scripture. And I want to read to you then from Judges chapter 15, because probably the most prominent example in the Old Testament, um, or one, there's only, only a couple of examples in the Old Testament, but one of them is this man, Samson, who occurs in the era of the Judges. So I'm going to read to you Judges 15, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask God to speak to us today. After some days, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll recall that what happened is Samson married a Philistine woman, and uh, in his kind of arrogance and just part of the chaos of his life, he set up a bet with the Philistines and lost the bet and um, went on a rampage, got angry, and he's been away from this woman who he's newly married to, and now he's returning, and he's coming with a peace offering, a goat. He wants to finally be wedded to her properly, and then you see what happens. It says, he said, I'll go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in, and her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And as Samson said to them, and Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. When then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I'll be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. And 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we've come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we'll only bind you and give you into their hands. We'll surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he'd finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. 
And that place was called Ramath Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Now, as I said to you, we've been engaged in a series on these Nazarites, these men and women of God who, through a a conscious choice of the will in most cases, would deliberately set themselves apart to God by entering into a vow in which they would promise not to uh, cut their hair, to eat anything from the vine or drink any wine or touch any dead bodies. And uh, so they would be consecrated to God. They'd be set apart for God's use for a specific purpose, for a season of life. And the first Nazarite that we encounter actually is Samson, an unusual man, who is set apart by God's choice from infancy, in fact, from the womb, and set apart to be a Nazarite for the entirety of his life. And as we've begun unpacking his story over the last few weeks, what you have discovered rapidly is how deeply, deeply flawed he is. How he strikes us as someone um, that you are surprised God would choose and use such a man. He's, he's arrogant. There's definitely a swagger to him um, that ultimately is his downfall. He's vulnerable in terms of his sexual desires and, again, This is part of the reason why ultimately Samson is taken out and why his life comes to a premature end. He's chaotic wherever he goes. He seems to just cause chaos. And uh, he's, he's a man who therefore just strikes you as just puzzling. Why did God choose such a flawed character? But in the midst of all this, what we learned last in the last chapter is that despite all the many things you can critique him on, He has these two virtues that seem to distinguish him, certainly from everyone else in the nation of Israel at the time. One of them is that he's fearless, and he has a particular brand of courage that puts him in exceedingly dangerous situations. And the other virtue that you notice about him is his capacity for for anger, for fury. And I know that anger is not typically associated with virtues, and in most cases, anger is something that has to be controlled and kept under um, firm grip because it can cause so much damage. But given the specific context they're in, as you understand, his anger is actually a virtue because he's angry against the injustices and the oppression that he and his people are experiencing and facing. Now, This is why these virtues that I mentioned last week, they need further exploration. We need to understand better what it means to to be righteously fearless and furious in the way that Samson is. And I I want you to understand something of the uniqueness of Nazarites, therefore. They appear in Scripture at times of peculiar difficulty for God's people. The examples we have arise when the general context is one of oppression, one of opposition by the enemies of God, those who want to crush and, 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 and hinder the life of God's people, and where there's a lack of leadership 
within God's people. This is when it seems that Nazarites emerge and crop up as these, these sort of outliers. Those who have been cut from a different cloth, who, have a, who, who break from the norm, who don't conform to the averages. If you look around and see the general spiritual condition and health of God's people generally, the Nazarites seem to stand out and emerge as uniquely different characters at a time when there is a, a broad sense of God's people being suffocated and oppressed and limited in some way. And so that is the context in which Samson arises. You learned at the beginning of chapter 13 in the prediction of his birth that the Philistines were ruling over Israel for 40 years. And they are, of course, an enemy people living in that strip of land that is today called Gaza, as it was then. And uh, they are um, a people who, who, were, who, were, who were military and, and mighty and who, oppressing, who were oppressing God's people. And they did so for 40 years. And so what does Israel need at a time like this when they are experiencing a military um, oppression? And the answer is not so much a prophet nor a priest. Though they have their, their place and their usefulness in the life of God's people. But what they needed above all was a warrior type person like Samson. So even though he is deeply, deeply, deeply flawed... There's a sense in which you have to read his story and understand he is as God wanted him to be. That he has capacities and abilities and a unique shape that fits him to the moment he's in. When what Israel most need is somebody like Samson. Now, the real question then is how are we going to read and understand this particular chapter in front of us? I confess to you, as I sat down to study on Tuesday morning, I was going to skip this chapter. <laughs> and uh, I don't think there's necessarily a problem with that. You know, when you're reading scripture, some portions are dense and deep and helpful to your spiritual life, some of them less so. And um, I was going to move straight into chapter 16, which is so rich. Um, Samson's fall and the, the, the marriage to Delilah, and God willing, we'll get there next week. And so I read this chapter and I thought, no. I'll put that to one side. And then I woke up the next day, and having read some commentaries, I suddenly felt gripped in a way I didn't particularly expect by the central theme in this passage. What use does a chapter like this have for us living as Christians in the 21st century? And generally speaking, the answer is, well, not much, okay? There's not much in here to help you with conflict management, for example. Um, There's not much here to, to help us with church growth strategies or cultural renewal strategies. It isn't full of complex, nuanced spiritual teaching in that way. That's not what we're being presented here at all. There's plenty of that elsewhere in Scripture. That's not what we're encountering here. But what we are encountering is really one thing, an abiding principle, an important principle that resonates with so many other areas and teachings in Scripture which has to do with the way Samson is constructed and the difference between Samson and the rest of the Israelites, and specifically this one thing, that he embodied a spirit of defiance against the prevailing evil of his day. He embodied defiance against the prevailing evil of his day. 
But what I want to do is, is show you how vital that is and the relevance, actually, between the time in which Samson was living and the day and age in which we live today. And the reason why I think God would speak to us as his people and urge us, in a sense, to embody that same spirit of defiance. Not in the same ways, of course, but by the power of the same spirit who lived in and upon Samson. How am I going to do that? Well, let me make a case to you. The first thing you have to understand is this. That the times in which Samson was born bear strong resemblance to the times in which we live as Christians in 21st century London. Here's what I mean. You need to recall that the book of the Judges, the era of the Judges, which is sandwiched in between the conquest of the land under Joshua's leadership and the appointment of the first of the kings, King Saul, which takes place in in the books of Samuel and the, the sequence of kings after that, there is this era called the era of the Judges. And what is most characteristic of the era of the Judges is that Israel's high point as a nation was very much in the past. They had experienced the exodus from Egypt under Moses' leadership. They had entered into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' heir, who was a godly man. They had covenanted with God in a very significant um, ceremony in in the book of Deuteronomy in which they, they make promises to be God's people and experience God's blessings And there had been this spiritual high point, therefore, of the nation and of of the the entry into the land and the establishment of of a landed people. All of that, however, was in the past. And now we've entered into a season of languishing. It's languishing partly because of a lack of consistent leadership. There are these moments when judges arise and they do something, accomplish something, but generally there's an absence of courageous, godly, spiritual leadership in the life of the nation. And the other thing that characterizes them is what I've been calling moral relativism. It's captured, I think, by a a phrase that keeps being repeated in the book of Judges and occurs as the very last verse in the book. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they no longer feel that they have to live lives that conform to the law of God. They instead live lives that are guided by their own inner sense of what is what is right and true to me, my truth, my morality. Now that's the general culture of the era of the judges and the era into which Samson is born. And then there's another thing that you have to notice that's true of his specific moment. He is born at a moment in this time when the nation has been conquered, as I mentioned, by the Philistines. And what we learn about the Philistines, these, these military this military people, is that they, they oppressed Israel. One thing that we're told in 1 Samuel is that they, they ensured that there were no blacksmiths in the land. Why? Because they wanted to make sure that the Israelites could not forge weapons and that they had to therefore go to the Philistines to have their, their various tools, like their, the, 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 the hoes and, and sickles, sharpened by the Philistines in order to keep them generally subjugated. Okay? Now, all of this speaks to me about the time in which we are living. Like the era of the judges, I think it's fair to say that the best days of the church and of Christianity, in in this nation at least, so far are in the past, long in the past. 
And we can think about the high points. We think about how in the 1600s um, there was the era of the Puritans in which these divines, these men who were extraordinarily well-learned as well as courageous, taught and preached and wrote and raised the level of spirituality in the nation. And you think about 100 years after them in the 1700s, how the greatest preachers in history were alive then who had the biggest impact, perhaps excluding Billy Graham in our last century, but some of the most powerful preachers in history, George Whitfield, John Wesley, and their companions, and the revivals that came on the back of their preaching in the 1700s. Then you move forward a century into the Victorian era. And although there were obviously flaws among Christians at the time, you cannot question their commitment to, to God's work and their zeal. Churches everywhere across this nation were built in that era. You could travel all through uh, South London especially, and you notice a particular style of building with the, the kind of Greek columns at the front, the church buildings. All of them were built while Spurgeon was, uh, was the, the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle, and the men he trained in the Baptist seminary that he began went out and planted churches all across the city and across the nation, as well as other, other um, denominations. This is when the modern missions movement really began, when men like George uh, Carey and, and, and Hudson Taylor were in their prime and, and traveling to, to, to other nations to preach the gospel. All of this is in our past, and we look at our current situation, and what do we see? We see an era of real decline. We see an absence of leadership. We see an absence of the kinds of, of uh, collective zeal and passion and courage among God's people that characterized pre- previous eras. And, you know, just as the Philistines w- were suffocating the people of God, I'm not going to stand here and claim that we have experienced anything like persecution. There are people that does a disservice to those brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who, have, who are experiencing that in acute ways. So I'm not going to call it that. But what we are experiencing is, is that kind of stifling effect of increasing marginalization, of increasing ridicule, of the, the, the oppression of real faith, and courageous faith, and the sense that we have to apologize for who we are. You know, a couple of examples that come to my mind just over the last couple of years, how one of our most senior political leaders visited, you might remember this story, visited a black Pentecostal church in London, and then had to, because of the pressure, the outrage, the anger that he would visit a church that preaches a biblical sex ethic, he then had to publicly apologize for the visit. And I, I, I was puzzled at the entire fiasco because it, it just revealed to us how much the nation has shifted, that certain things are no longer, are now considered so marginal that even you know, traditional, historic, orthodox Christianity is regarded as a fanatical sect, no longer with a voice or a platform. Or you think about the same thing, more or less the same, the same um, dynamics were at work in the lead-up to the king's coronation because of the position of the state church, the Anglican church, and its role within that ceremony, pressures began to be applied to the Anglican church. Now, we're not Anglicans, but we have an interest in what they do because, generally speaking, they're in the same team as us. Not all of them, but many of them. And uh, 
As they, the lead up to the coronation was taking place, they were, pressure was applied to them. Okay, you have this one thing about you that's not in sync with the spirit of the age in which we're living, and it's your teaching on a traditional sex ethic. And therefore, they had to have their synod, and they had to change their teaching. Of course, all of this, the, the oppression, the stifling, the suffocation of the distinctiveness of what makes Christians Christian, what makes us Faithful to Christ, what makes us faithful to his word, his teaching. And so I see all these similarities that just as Samson was born into an age of oppression and an age in which the general spirit among his people was one of having been crushed. They were subjugated people. There was no fight left in them. There was no spirit in them. There was no hope in them. There was a resignation that things that can only get worse and that we simply have to just preserve our lives And that's the best we can do. I think generally speaking, that's exactly how it feels to be a Christian in 21st century Britain. The general church, the church has generally declined, hasn't it? Over the last hundred years and is constantly in that direction. Pulpits are empty everywhere. It's not uncommon in the established denominations for a single pastor to lead Three, four, five churches. You can't, you can't do that effectively, but that's not uncommon because there's just a lack of people coming through to, to lead. There's an absence of leadership. And even when very often men are in leadership, they don't represent the courageous, clear call of the gospel. There's a compromise. There's a, an effeminacy, if I can put it that way, to the way that, that they are leading and, and teaching. There's a resignation that the next generation likely won't, won't be Christians in the way that we are. Increasingly, people just hope that their children will follow God, but generally don't expect them to. Why? Well, because millennials and Gen Z have been the most irreligious generations in history, in, 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 in our kind of history of our nation. So, Friends, I don't think our times are that dissimilar from the era in which Samson was raised. And here's the second thing you have to understand. If that is true generally, that the times bear similarity, our response as the church also is not unlike Israel's. Here's what I mean. Look at how they, the Israelites, and particularly the tribe of Judah, we mentioned here in this chapter, look at how they respond to the chaos that Samson is causing. Samson is picking fights. He's setting fire to fields and orchards of vineyards. He's setting fire and causing chaos because, of, because he's defiant against the, the, the Philistines and because of what they've done to him. They then burn his father-in-law and the woman that he was supposed to be married to. And then he strikes them, it tells us, hip and thigh. Now, we don't know what he did, but it sounds like he caused a lot of damage. He came in and hurt people. And then the Philistines, they go on a raid. This happens in verse 9. It tells us that they came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. A raid was when a group of men would, would, would march into a village, rape the women, steal the goods, destroy properties, start fires. That's raiding. And they come in and they make a raid in this town. And it tells us in verse 10 that the men of Judah, the ones who had been wronged in that moment, They ask, why have you come up against us? And the Philistines said, we've come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. 
Now, what do they do at this point, this tribe of Judah? They do not turn on their enemy, their true enemy, who are the Philistines. Instead, they turn on Samson. Because they've accepted the status quo. They've accepted the, the fact that they're a subjugated people. And they rather like living a peaceful life and not being harried and attacked by Philistines. So what do they do? They want to deal with the problem by betraying their own leader, Samson. And this is what we're told. And I think this is such a sad and tragic verse. Listen to verse 11. It tells us, and 3,000 men of Judah, so they're not, you know, this isn't a small number. This is a fairly sizable, mighty group of men. But they don't express might. It says, they went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Don't you know that we are a subjugated, oppressed people and that's who we are and that's where we belong? Isn't that a tragic thing to say? What is this that you've done to us? And so it goes on in the next, those verses. They arrest Samson. Samson ensures their, their commitment that they won't kill him. Just hand him over. And they say, oh, no, we won't kill you. We'll only bind you and give you into their hands. We'll surely not kill you. It's just the, the height of cowardice, Right? Now this, you have to understand that the book of Judges opens with an account of the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of the land. And one tribe is singled out in the very opening verses of the book. It's the tribe of Judah. We're told there that Joshua asks, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And the unfolding verses, half of that chapter, is the account of their march to take their land, the courage, the boldness, the fearlessness, because they trusted in God's promise, they know God, and they know that he's, he's anointed them for their task. And here we are, some generations later, and they are a completely different people. All the courage has vanished. All the fight has vanished. All the spirit has vanished. There's no zeal. There's only fear. You know, if once they had been like the greatest generation, you remember some of our ancestors were among the first to step foot out of the the landing boats onto the the beaches on D-Day in order to, to ensure liberty for Europe. And then contrast that with today's generation. And the question, what would happen if we were generally in a a war as they were then? And the question marks aren't there. Well, what about spiritually? If previous generations have been known for their, their extraordinary courage, you know, one way tickets to different parts of the world to come and bring the gospel of Jesus, absolute sacrifice. You know, I think of history is replete with stories of courageous, courageous, bold men and women of God. Some of my favorite quotes, for example, like this one from, from Tyndale, William Tyndale, in the early 1500s. He got hold of a Greek New Testament that had been published by Erasmus, and he familiarized himself with it, 
when he, you know, so many of them at that time had only grown up with the, the, the Latin Bible. He familiarized himself with this more original version of the New Testament, and he, he learned the biblical languages, and he set himself to begin a translation, not content that we would only have Latin scriptures in churches where people wouldn't understand the Bible when it's being read to them, but desperate to translate it into the language of the people. And once over dinner, when he's challenged by a Catholic who disagreed with this for fear um, that, you know, I suppose that for fear that people would misunderstand, abuse scripture, and also that the Catholic Church would lose its position of, of monopoly and power over what people should do and think, Tyndale's answer was, if God spare my life, before many years I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. And so he was chased and eventually executed by the church authorities at the time for his apparently heretical beliefs that you had to actually translate scripture into language that people understand. But he had courageously accomplished most of his task and, and ensured that we now have a, a history of scriptures in English. It stems from, largely from his work and from Wycliffe who went before him. And gave his life for it. Around 30 years after that quote that I just read in the 1550s, it was the height of the, the horrible turmoil and the transitions of power. And when Bloody Mary was on the throne and she was killing Protestant leaders at the time, and they executed two men in Oxford, Latimer and Ridley. You can still visit the, the spot on which they were burned at the stake, tied back to back with a, a pole between them and then a fire set around their feet so that they would be burned alive. And uh, we're told in Fox's Book of Martyrs, his, his account of the martyrs of that era, that, that Latimer turned, that spoke to Ridley over his shoulder and said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. And we, we, owe our, we owe our faith to people like this. We owe our faith to people like this. Those of you who have come from overseas and have perhaps had a Christian heritage in your nation that didn't exist 100, 200 years ago, Perhaps you also owe your faith to the courage of people who took the gospel and lit a torch in other lands. But now, now we live at a moment where we wince at leaders who express defiance, who are convinced and convicted about what the scriptures teach and won't be budged on them. Just six months ago, there was a story of a Christian um, theologian and teacher in a Methodist seminary in the north of England who tweeted a concern around the way the church was conforming to and being influenced by um, un unbiblical sex ethic. Again, it seems to be the issue of the day, doesn't it? But that was the issue he, he tweeted about. He was suspended that day and two weeks later fired from his job from an evangelical Bible college. And I asked myself the question, 
Who do we need to be more fearful of? Is it the world or is it actually brothers and sisters in Christ? Whose fear sounds a lot like the tribe of Judah, a subjugated people, a people who are, you know, don't you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Don't you know that, that we, need to, we need to move with the times, we need to change, we need to, we need to alter those spiky and offensive aspects of Christian belief and doctrine and teaching and lifestyle and practice for the sake of the future and the survival of the church? And that anyone dare stand up and be different, we're going to arrest you and hand you over. We'll do the job for them. We'll fire you. What is this? It's embarrassment. It's shame. Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think there is a, a, a widespread sense of shame about Jesus and his word. There's fear. The fear of exclusion. The fear of further decline unless we, we adapt. When, of course, the opposite is true. The more you adapt, give up what you're about, the less purpose point there is in existing to begin with. And so we, as Christians, we find ourselves self-censuring all the time. We find ourselves retreating into a privatized faith. We find ourselves wanting to conform, wanting to adapt, because it's difficult to be a Christian. If our times are like theirs, and our response to the times is much like theirs, I want to say one final thing to you, friends. It means that our need today is much like theirs also. Our need is like theirs. What do I mean? When I read this chapter and felt uncertainty about the spiritual nourishment we could gain from a story like this, I was then gripped as I thought, there's a reason why this is recorded. Why is it? Why has God left us an account like this? And I think it is this fundamental point that I mentioned to you earlier. That when everyone else is, is fearful and cowed, Samson ratchets up his defiance. It happens in three phases in this chapter. The first phase is when he discovers his, his new wife has been given away to his best man. And so he, you know, he, he sets fire to the fields with these foxes or jackals. The second phase is when they, they burn his family and then he, he strikes them, it tells us, hip and thigh. And the third phase of his ratcheting up, his defiance against them, is when he's arrested by, his own, by the tribe of Judah, handed over, and then it tells us that the bonds were, were on his arm became like flax as the spirit rushed on him and he picked up a jawbone and he struck a thousand men. And it's recorded here to, in a strange way, to inspire and to provoke you as a Christian that part of your calling in this world is to make war. These stories are recorded for that purpose. My wife walked into my study this week with her phone pointed in my face and asked me the question, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? (laughs) 
I don't know if you're familiar with the, the, the trend um, where suddenly women have discovered that if they ask men the question, the, the answer surprises them because men think about the Roman Empire often, some men daily. And um, I had to be honest and tell her it was, it was quite regular. I'd spoken about the Roman Empire the night before. So, um, <laughs> and why is that? What is it about the Roman Empire that seems to grip the minds and imaginations and stir the hearts and the spirits of men? Well, I think there are lots of things. There's glory, might, conquest, power, discipline. Many of the things that actually seem to have been diminished and erased from, from modern life. There's something that resonates. And my point to you, friends, is that as Christians, rather than thinking about the Roman Empire, we need to go back to places like the book of Judges. And although our methods are different, the spirit is the same. It's the spirit of defiance. And what does this story inspire you towards? Well, let me be emphatically clear. Not violence. We, we want to spare the foxes and, and people. Not moralistic culture wars either. You know, by, by speaking to you in this way, I'm not trying to provoke us to, to, tr- to trying to launch something like the, the modern Western Christian version of crusades and, and conquests in order to take over. You know, when Paul's talking to the Corinthian Christians about their sex ethic, he, he says, he says that, that we're meant to judge each other as God's people, but but if someone's not in the church, he says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? You know, there's this kind of clear principle in Scripture that, that we can be fiercely for something as God's people without really concerning ourselves with the way the world is. Now, as God's people, salt and light, we want to bring the transforming power of God's teaching, but we're not engaging in, in the, the harsh and shrill culture wars in the name of Christ, that actually just turn people away from him ultimately. So I'm not calling for that. I'm not calling for the brashness and the arrogant masculinity that you see in Samson. I think where that has characterized Christian leaders, it's generally led to more harm than good. So we're not talking about that. Samson was a flawed man. We recognize and acknowledge that. But what I am talking about is godly defiance. What I am talking about is humble courage. I'm talking about resolute faith. To know what it is that you're called to and what you stand for. To forge and form your identity in the way you live. For the sake of yourself, because you can't live a godly life without this. For the sake of your family, if and when God gives you a family and you have leadership within a family. For the sake of your church. And then the world. And some of you, I think, are perhaps wondering, what does this have to do with the Christian life? What place does defiance have in the Christian life? And my answer to you, friends, is everything. Discipleship to Jesus requires a violent posture. Primarily against the flesh and yourself. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to die first. Killing yourself, killing your agenda, killing your will, your ambition, your desires, that they might be conformed to Christ. It requires a ruthlessness and a resolute posture. 
And the Bible is full of inspiring stories of people who embody that defiance and that allows them to live a life of faithfulness to God. Let me list some of them to you. I think, for example, about Caleb, friends of Joshua, one of the tw- two of the 12 spies who went in to look at the land and came back, and they were the only two who brought about the report that we can conquer the land. The other 10 said it's impossible. And they misled a generation. A generation died in the wilderness, but two men from that generation lived. They were Joshua and Caleb. Many years later, when Caleb's an old man, and finally the conquest of the land begins, he still has his spirit in him, the fighting spirit. And he says, Give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Now he's a man in his 80s at this point, hobbling around with a cane or whatever he needed, but the spirit hasn't changed. I think about his friend Joshua who led the nation at the time and who towards the end of his, uh, his life and his leadership and as he's trying to forge the people to be faithful to God, he challenges them. In Joshua chapter 24, and he says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, that your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So he's putting before them the great question, the great challenge that dominates Israelite history for probably a thousand years, which is who will you worship? And then he gives this answer. He says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is saying, even if all of you fall away, I and my household will be faithful to God. That's a spirit of defiance. And think about the second king of Israel, David, who when he hears of another Philistine, Goliath, challenging the nation of Israel to a fight and how they're camped on different sides of a valley and they're too scared. Any, the nation's too scared to, to rise to the challenge. And then David comes along, a shepherd boy, having spent most of his years on the hillside protecting sheep from bears and wolves and lions. And what does he do? After hearing what's going on, he asks, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He has a spirit of defiance and he inspires a nation. He rises to leadership that allows him to bring the nation into its greatest era of flourishing and wealth and peace, ultimately. But it begins in David's heart because he's defiant. I think about Jeremiah, many centuries later, who is given the unenviable task as a prophet to speak truths that nobody wants to listen to. It's the hardest book in the Bible to read, in my opinion, because it's just constant, unrelenting um, critique of the nation. But they had to hear it, and God appointed Jeremiah to it, and Jeremiah doesn't really want the job. And this is what he says. He says in Jeremiah 20, If I say, I will not mention him, 
or speak any more in his name. So if he says, if I decide I'm going to stop being a prophet for a while to have an easy life, he then adds, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire. Shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. It's a scripture that, that I meditate on regularly and think about in terms of what it means to be a preacher. But it's a scripture that I think has relevance to all of us. If you decide, I'm going to be silent. I'm not going to share what I believe is true in this instant or what it means to follow Christ, or what it means to be faithful to Christ or the challenge of the gospel. He says, the word of God is like a fire in my bones and I can't keep it inside. It's, it's erupting out of me. That's the spirit of defiance. I think about John the Baptist, that great Nazarite who preceded the arrival of, of Jesus and how Christ says of him in Matthew 11, he says that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And I read that as a commendation of the spirit of John the Baptist. He's saying that John the Baptist is a leader because he has a defiant spirit. Because whereas everyone else in the nation may seem to be compromised in sin, and where the king of the nation, Herod himself, is in, in a, a deeply compromised sexual relationship, John the Baptist is the voice who's challenging everybody and who challenges Herod and who ends up being executed because of it. I think about the book of Acts and how those early preachers began to preach. And Peter and John are very quickly called before the authorities in Acts chapter 4, and they are charged to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. And their response is legendary. They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, you authorities, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. They're saying it's impossible to silence us. Because what we believe is true. We've seen it, we've heard it, we know it. It's a spirit of defiance. I think about Stephen, a couple of chapters later. That man who is appointed as a deacon in the life of the church, who was full of the spirit of God and of wisdom, along with his friends who also were appointed as deacons. And it tells us there, immediately Luke begins to tell us the account of Stephen's unique giftings. It says, he, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So he was performing miracles, but also he was preaching. And we learn that in his preaching, as he was encountering resistance by, from people who didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God and that they should give their lives to him, it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So here's a man who wasn't even appointed by the apostles to be a preacher, but he's got such ability, so full of the Holy Spirit and full of a God-given wisdom and understanding the Scriptures and knowing how to bring persuasive argument that they can't withstand him. So what do they do? They kill him. He's the first martyr. I think about Paul and his approach to faithfulness to Christ in the midst of temptation. And he says this, I discipline my body 
or I beat my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He doesn't want to be the kind of preacher who can preach the gospel well and skillfully and persuasively and powerfully, but his private life is a mess. He says, in order to not be disqualified, I beat my body. It's a spirit of defiance against sin and temptation. Or I think about how he challenges the younger man, Timothy, who is prone to timidity and fear. And Paul challenges him and he says that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So you can draw a line all the way through Scripture from the beginning to the end and discover that everywhere in Scripture, this theme is exalted that in order to be faithful to God in a world such as this, you have to have defiance. You have to have courage. You have to be willing to enter fights, even if it's just with yourself. And the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, tells us, gives us an image of King Jesus finally coming to bring things to a resolution and a close here on earth. Depicts him as being sat on a white horse and how he's called faithful and true and how in righteousness he judges and makes war and his eyes are like a flame of fire on his head many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he's called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations And he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The image there given to us in the book of Revelation, written in a time of intense persecution for God's people, the image of Christ that is lauded there is one of him as an all-conquering warrior, riding a white horse with a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, tattooed down his thigh, with a sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God, bringing peace to the nations by bringing his staff, his rule, his rod of authority to them. And of course, you think, this is, well, that's a violent image. It is, but you have to understand that Christ doesn't conquer by killing. He conquers by, by calling people to kill themselves, to die to the flesh that they might live for him and have new life. And he brings the nations into surrender and submission and peace to his rule and authority. This is what Jesus is doing in this world. And where the rule of Christ is absent, chaos and destruction ensues. We kill each other. We kill ourselves. Destroy ourselves. Let me ask a final question before I close. Where are you called to be defiant? You're called to be defined in a consumeristic age in which the whole way life is set up is to turn you into a passive consumer feathered with excessive comfort, indulgence, and entertainment so that you are basically amusing yourself to death, as the book title puts it. In order to live a a vibrant, zealous spiritual life, you have to defy the age of consumerism. You're called to be defiant in a society that has normalized the slaughter of infants, in which we relentlessly kill our own in the womb. 
and then describe it as a women's rights issue, as though at least probably more than half of those kids aren't women to be. You're called to be defined in your sex life, remembering what Paul said to the Corinthians, that you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, then you're called to defiantly resist those desires that would bring you into a situation of sin and unfaithfulness to Christ. You have to be defiant, friend. If you're someone who experiences same-sex attraction, the Scriptures call you to defiance and faithfulness to God. Defiance against yourself and the voices of the world that will tell you that you're somehow betraying yourself by not living it out, but it recalls you to be defiant in order that you can be faithful to Jesus. You're called to be defiant in an age of greed and materialism, remembering that Christ said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And since Christ spoke about wealth so often, he did so because he saw its suffocating effects upon people's spiritual vitality. There needs to be a defiance against greed and materialism, the constant accumulation. You have to be defined in a narcissistic age in which glorifying yourself and living a performative life, particularly online, is now considered normal. In which we're constantly attention-seeking. And that requires defiance and a call back to the biblical virtue of humility, of hidden service, hidden righteousness, hidden godliness. Don't mindlessly get swept along with the tides of the culture, the way it's shifting so rapidly on these issues. Think, friend, think. If this is not in sync with the Spirit of Christ, then get away with it. Do away with it. Get it out of your life completely. We're called to be defined in an era of doublespeak in which truths are turned into lies and lies into truths and on all kinds of issues. You know, if you were to ask me today, what is, what is the essence of the culture issue to do with um, the trans ideology? And I'll tell you, it's actually to do with the Eighth Commandment, that you shall not bear false witness. You don't tell a lie. That's what it's actually about, and that's why Christians care about this. It's not to do with that we care about what people do with their own bodies and their own time and their own business. It's not that. It's about whether I can be permitted to speak truly. That's what it's about, friend. And when you live in a world in which you're not permitted to speak truly, then you're being subjugated. You're called to a spirit of defiance in a world in which you are told that your beliefs must be private lest you cause offense to others. And of course, that goes right against what the New Testament tells us. Jesus says that we're a city on a hill, that a light has to be brought out from under its covering and give light to the whole house. The apostles demonstrated this, didn't they, by their courageous stance, even in the face of actual violent 
opposition to the gospel, which you and I have never and probably will never face. So please don't tell me that belief has to be private. My point to you, friend, is that you cannot live the Christian life unless at some point the Spirit of God fills you and you realize, I must defy that in saying yes to Jesus, you are saying no to many things, including to yourself. You're saying no to unbelief, to doubt, to sin, to temptation, to compromise, to coldness, to passivity, to fear. Now, the story ends with Samson in a very unusual position because here for the first time we see him praying to God. He was very thirsty, we're told, and he called out upon the, to the Lord and said, you know, you, you've, you've granted this great salvation, and now am I to die first? And God miraculously allows a spring of water to emerge from the ground, and he's, he's given water to drink. And friend, I, I, the moments like this don't occur accidentally in Scripture. They're meant to speak to us, and they're meant to ask the question, How, as God's people, are we meant to stay faithful to Christ and live a life of defiant faithfulness to him? And the answer that's given here is that you cannot do it except by the refreshing, replenishing, empowering supply of God's Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit is that when you're full of the Spirit, your character is forged and shaped by the Spirit. So you become the kind of person Samson wasn't, characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things are true of you when you're full of the Holy Spirit. But in the midst of it all, he makes you bold. He makes you courageous. He gives you power. He gives you strength to live this life. I want to close and I want to pray. But I want to ask that, that God may awaken and embolden each of you to understand the cost of following Christ and the need of the moment. We can live lives of blandness in that fuzzy gray area between faithfulness and worldliness. Or we can take Christ at his word and understand what he's calling for in following him. Is that what you desire? 